say your name? Yeah. Yeah, he's good. I feel like every episode now is just like I talk about a bunch of kind of uh, hard political stuff at the beginning, and then you're like, "Okay, folks, it's award season. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about that." And I suspect uh, this episode will be uh, no different. Well, folks, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. And yeah, uh, Luke was alluding to something that I tweeted about a second ago, uh, just before we logged on. Although Will has been known to tweet during the broadcast, which uh, is something I've filed several grievances with HR about. I would never do that. I don't. I don't. I think that's my staff. But it is award season, and I'd like to introduce a new star in the Michael and Us cosmos. He is a journalist named Jeffrey Wells, who has a blog called Hollywood Elsewhere. On his blog, there's a banner at the top that has testimonials from various celebrities. You know, there's Guillermo del Toro saying something nice about him. There's J.J. Abrams who says, There's Hollywood elsewhere and there's everyone else. It's like your neighborhood dive where you get the ugly truth, a good laugh, and a damn good scotch. So that's J.J. Abrams, probably quoted like a full 20 years ago saying what the appeal of HollywoodElsewhere.com was back then. He's the Oscar blogger who gives it to you straight up. Like Jeffrey Wells, he's got a cowboy hat. He's kind of grizzled. You know, he doesn't have time for like the PC police. You know, he's, he's just telling it like it is. This is a stupid reference to make because only people in Toronto will get it. But it sounds like uh, how when you see posters for the Cineforum, they're all like quotes that, you know, are, were published in the Globe and Mail, but uh, but like in like 1993 or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I met jeffrey wells once i met him at the same tiff party where i met michael moore that time you know for for some of us jeffrey wells that is a, like what a superstar to see in the wild you know jeffrey wells is just a completely absurd figure like he'll do things like for a full 10 or 15 years he's been waging this war on his blog against seth rogan the minute knocked up came out he was so appalled that this like schlubby stoner had become a star so every time a new seth rogan movie is out he just launches a week-long campaign against it (laughs) this doesn't make sense why is there a movie where charlie's theron is dating seth rogan it's it's it defies credulity he's constantly getting into stupid idiotic shenanigans like i think he crashed james gandolfini's funeral uh, which was invitation only on the thin pretense that he was his friend somehow Or like he told this incredible story on his blog once about seeing Miles Teller on the street and yelling at him, yo, whiplash. And Miles Teller giving him like a weird look and being like, what? And he just he just wrote this as a blog post as if it was cool somehow. Uh, And I remember a year or two ago when the most recent Godzilla movie came out, he Similar to his issue with uh, Seth Rogen, he did this tirade, this series of blog posts about how Godzilla was too portly now. Uh, um, you know, he thought that this was evidence somehow of the degradation of standards in our society. So when I met him at this TIFF party, I said to him, oh, my God, you're Jeffrey Wells. I'm a huge fan of you. And he looked at me and he said, Really? Like, he, he thought I was fucking with him. Well, I mean, to be fair, you were. I was. I was. But, like, I was so starstruck. I couldn't believe I was in his presence. And then when he said, really, I didn't know how to get out of this moment. So what I did was I just said, oh, yeah. No, I, I love your stuff. I, I read you almost every day, which is true. Uh, and, he, and he was like, really? You, you read me a lot? And I was like... Oh, yeah. And then I'm thinking, okay, think of a thing he wrote that you liked. Think of a thing he wrote that you liked. And I 
couldn't do it. You're like, I, I think your I think your tirade against uh, Rubenesque Godzilla was very <laughs> profound. You know, you you really spoke out for Adonises such as ourselves, who are increasingly being shafted in this degraded society. You know, we're constantly being tossed aside uh, by the ladies in favor of people like Seth Rogen and uh, chubby Godzilla. It's no country for old men anymore out there. But what I find fascinating about uh, Jeff Wells is, you know, he's like a full-time Oscar blogger, Oscar prognosticator. And by the way, he's like a bad guy. Like, you know, he's constantly writing terrible things that, you know, nobody should defend or like. But what's interesting about him is that he embodies like the moral and spiritual rot at the center of all Oscar journalism. He's constantly writing about things and just framing them through the prism of the Oscar race. He, he, sound, he sounds like just a pundit, but for film journalism, like Chris Saliza, but for like writing about the Oscars. Yeah, and you know, there are some people who do this, like all Oscar prognosticators do this, but they gussy it up with this pretense that they actually care about social justice. He doesn't. He's a, a more reactionary <laughs> figure than that. He also just has a gaping void where his soul should be. So I find him the only Oscar prognosticator that I regularly read because it's like seeing the Dorian Gray version of an Oscar prognosticator. It's like, this, this is real. This is the real shit. And so today, after the horrible murders in Atlanta... He did this terrible blog post that he quickly deleted because it had so much uproar where the opening sentence was him quoting a friend. I'm not going to read this whole thing because it's genuinely appalling, but it was him quoting a friend that said, you know, if there was one millionth of a chance in hell that Chloe Zhao and Nomadland wasn't going to win Oscars, this event just snuffed out that chance. And you read that and it's like, holy shit, this is your first response to this? Like thinking about how it shakes up the Oscar race? So this guy just... He has a website. He has a blog. Like, is this a guy that, like, has been employed at a newspaper as a film critic before? Like, how have people like J.J. Abrams and Guillermo del Toro heard of him? He's one of those guys. He's a lifer. He's been around forever in, like, the film industry. He used to write for Entertainment Weekly for people. He ran Kevin Smith's movie website for a long time, which was called moviepoopshoot.com. I'm, I'm sorry sure. to have to tell you that. I'm reading his biography now, and it goes back so much further than that. He was an editor at The Hollywood Reporter in the 80s. And for the last 20 years or so, he's had this forum on the internet called Hollywood Elsewhere. Ostensibly, it's his take on the film industry and the entertainment industry. But really, it's just like his Twitter. Like he does these blog posts every day. Like he, he did a legendary one once where he ran out of regular shampoo. So he used deodorant instead or something like that. One of the really famous blog posts. And you're reading that and it's like, why why are you posting this on your, your showbiz insider movie website he's a proud elitist he loves uh bill maher and he's constantly making cracks about just like regular moviegoers he calls them the bumblefucks and he, he doesn't want the bumblefucks reading his blog because this is for hollywood insiders and let me guess his blog makes uh 1.7 million dollars a year well he's been able to last so long because there is or there was probably not anymore but there was once a contingent of like older academy voters who would check in with him all the movie studios buy advertising on his website and they run for your consideration ads he's been able to survive on this blog on for your consideration advertising i mean he said enough 
enough appalling things over the years that film festivals are starting to stop giving him accreditation. I know that that time that I met him, he was not officially accredited. Okay, this is so funny. He was not accredited at the Toronto Film Festival because the year before he had faked having a heart attack. He wanted to make a point about how lax the volunteers were. So he he faked a heart attack in line. And it turns out the festival didn't take too kindly to that. Well, uh, I'm learning so much today. Cancel culture strikes again. Um, And uh, speaking of cancel culture, uh, I want to turn to something political now, which is um, the the scandal that is rocking the nation of Canada. Well, I don't know if you've heard about this government of Alberta versus uh, uh, this Bigfoot cartoon on Netflix. Are you aware of this? I have heard a little bit about this. And something that you've mentioned on the podcast a couple times is going to like the Manning Center conference. And you saw this very memorable speech by a conservative filmmaker who said, you know, Hollywood, they're all rabid socialists and they control the media and they're telling their stories. We need to figure out a way to tell our own stories. Like, it seems that conservatives are constantly sensing this brainwashing campaign in all all the most innocuous seeming entertainments. Yes, yes. I'm so, so I'm glad you brought this up because this is actually kind of what I wanted to lead with before we get into the Alberta versus Bigfoot scandal. I think I've told a part of that story before before on the podcast, but basically this was an event at the Manning Conference, which is the uh, now mostly defunct. I mean, I don't, I don't think they do the conference anymore, but for, for years, this was like the premier gathering, annual gathering of the conservative movement in Canada. And of course, when you went to it, like, I don't know what percentage of speakers were from the United States and many, I think it was a majority of, of them. Usually they'd have some big, uh, you know, big name like Ron Paul or something uh, headlining. Uh, the year I went, I think it was Mark Stein, who I guess is British. Another year they had Nigel Farage. They farm reactionaries from uh, all around the Anglosphere. But this event was the first panel that I went to at the 2014 Manning Conference. And I've been several times. I would say if there's any way you can make it work, it's useful and, and interesting to go to these kind of like movement conservative gatherings. I hope to go to CPAC one year, the, the American conservative one. I did learn an awful lot and I'm not uh, I'm not being facetious there. It's tremendous to see what conservatism looks like when it's not trying to kind of filter its uh, core ideas and rhetoric for a kind of mainstream audience. And in addition to being uh, hilarious at times, it was a really interesting experience. And so this was back in 2014, the very first panel I went into. Um, I was looking this up today because I've been writing about this. And um, the panel featured this guy uh, by the name of Adam Gillette, who represents something called, or he was representing something called the Moving Picture Institute, which is a uh, Koch brother affiliated outfit whose mission statement is that it promotes freedom through film. Um, So this guy was some kind of, I think he was a documentary filmmaker himself. And from a kind of political messaging standpoint, what he was saying made a certain degree of sense. And I think is basically correct. He was saying you don't communicate effectively in politics if, you know, you just hit people with data points and graphs and and stuff like that. He he was saying, uh, I think this is pretty funny. He was saying that uh, the problem with conservatives is, is that they're far too like numbers and facts based, whereas the left by which he meant, uh, as I learned, absolutely everything uh, from like center-right business liberals to like Stalinists, which are basically the same thing. The left always leads with emotion. And uh, they they have these very powerful stories, he was saying. They always have this populist structure, this kind of David and Goliath structure where it's, you know, like ordinary folks fighting back against big bad corporations or whatever. And I think that's that's basically true, you know, as a kind of like guide to political storytelling. Uh, I just want to interrupt you for a minute because I looked up... moving picture institute and on the creative council 
role is Peter Billingsley, who played Little Ralphie in A Christmas Story. As, too, is the granddaughter of Cecil B. DeMille. Her name is Cecilia DeMille Presley. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm learning so much today. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think from just a basic political storytelling point of view, you know, a kind of populist narrative usually features some kind of like, you know, Adam Sandler has to save the community center from the developers. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, the, I, yeah the, I, yes, the classic populist folktale. Um, but then, of course, because this is, you know, a right wing gathering, all the stuff he's talking about is like salt of the earth. Petroleum executives are being put upon by, you know, environmental radicals who have the entirety of the culture, which is basically Marxist top to bottom on their side or like, you know, CEOs who in his uh, in his world words were always being kind of demonized by Hollywood, which is vociferous in its promotion of anti-capitalist ideas. I think about this speech a lot for a lot of reasons. I mean, one reason is that I think it underscores the way that conservatives, or at least uh, many of them, just sort of collapse all of their ideological rivals into the same monolith. Like I said before, to this guy, just absolutely everything was like, he, he used sort of Marxist and liberal and like socialist, communist. It was all just kind of interchangeable. And a lot of the things he was criticizing, you know, he was criticizing things which like might be culturally encoded as liberal, but were certainly not left or socialist uh, spaces or institutions uh, at all. But one thing that he was particularly concerned about was children's literature. I feel like he brought up the issue of children being brainwashed multiple times or kind of inferring that was happening. And, you know, I was thinking about this speech uh, again, even before the, the this Bigfoot scandal, because uh, I was remembering that one of the things he specifically brought up was Dr. Seuss, which I guess is something conservative. Now, now that uh, now that it turns out Dr. Seuss was racist, conservatives <laughs> like him. Um, but he was he was complaining about uh, the Lorax and he was calling it like Marxist propaganda for children. Anyway, it was a very funny speech. I mean, just like unless you're immersed constantly in kind of the right wing media ecosystem, like everything about it was absurd. Like the idea that Steven Spielberg and Matt Damon, who he specifically name dropped, I think, are like purveyors of anti-capitalist propaganda or whatever just like the idea of somebody taking such umbrage over something like the Lorax was incredible but so fast forward to uh, a few days ago the province of Alberta which for several decades has really been you know the spiritual and ideological heartland of Canadian conservatism it's been the province which really since Canada was founded has been the most prone to kind of right-wing rule and a very small p populist sort of right-wing rule that uh, will be familiar to lots of American listeners. Going back to at least the, the 20s and 30s, kind of, uh, you know, fire and brimstone type of conservatism, lots of kind of uh, Pentecostalism thrown in there. It's a province, uh, though, also prone to kind of corporatism because it's just kind of had one dynasty after another that's last, you know, one right-wing dynasty after another lasting many decades. So you had the Social Credit Party, which governed for I don't know how long, and then you had uh, the Progressive Conservative Party, which in many ways was kind of, uh, I mean, a similar thing under a different name. There were decades of unbroken uh, PC rule, and then you had uh, this very strange period between 2015 and 2019 where the NDP governed the province before it kind of returned to right-wing governance under the leadership of this guy, Jason Kenney, who is a kind of, you know, he's one of the, the real kind of veterans of Canadian conservatism going back to the Reform Party days of the early 1990s and, and even before. He was a, a cabinet minister under Stephen Harper, so he's now the premier at the head of this new United Conservative Party. 
you know, one of the things that was really animating to uh, Albertan conservatives during the NDP's time in office was this kind of uh, oil sands, you know, grievance politics. Like the NDP is like, you know, attacking the oil sands, you know, they're caving to environmentalists, you know, all that all that kind of stuff. Like really extraction identity politics are like core to the Albertan uh, conservatism or, or at least a strand of it. And the superlative example of this uh, is this thing that Jason Kenney created in 2019. I guess a few months after taking office. Now, this is something which is called the Canadian Energy Center, and it is essentially a publicly funded uh, war room. I think that's the phrase they used, you know, which it costs, I think, tens of millions of dollars a year. I think it has a growing budget, in fact, and is basically tasked to its defenders anyway, you know, correcting misinformation about the oil, you know, oil industry, stuff like that. I mean, it, it is quite literally like a publicly funded agency that exists to defend private industry and particular private industry. Now, uh, the latest crusade uh, that the Canadian Energy Centre has undertaken is a pressure campaign against something called uh, Bigfoot Family, which I think was number one in Canada uh, for a little while at least on Netflix when it debuted in February. Um, So this is a summary of Bigfoot Family uh, from the Toronto Star. Uh, In the movie, the Bigfoot father is joined by protesters after he comes out in support of a local wildlife preserve that is up for oil development before mysteriously disappearing. His son, Adam, eventually tracks him down with the help of some animal friends and exposes the oil tycoon's plans to develop oil by bomb before the hero gets a kiss from his crush. Uh, so sounds like nice, wholesome children's entertainment to sounds me. Sounds like shit, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, I would never it, watch that. I'm not. I'm not going to be watching it. Um, but uh, but here's how the uh, here's how the so-called uh, war room of the Alberta government responded. They have a page up that reads. Netflix recently added a kids movie that is spreading misinformation about the oil and gas industry. The movie called Bigfoot Family was number one in Canada and the U.S. when it debuted on the streaming service earlier this year and peddles lies about the energy sector. It even shows oil being extracted by blowing up a valley using glowing red bombs that look like something out of an action movie. So they basically have, and I'll just remind you, this is a, you know, this is a government funded agency. They have a form letter that they have set up on a website that's like support Canadian energy.ca. They have a, like a form set up so that you can send this letter to Netflix executives, you know, registering your very, uh, your very grassroots outrage at this Netflix cartoon. And the demand it's making is that Netflix executives use, quote, their powerful platform to tell the true story of Canada's peerless oil and gas industry and not contribute to misinformation targeting your youngest, most vulnerable and impressionable viewers. And then the the text accompanying the form says in like bolded and underlined brainwashing our kids with anti-oil and gas propaganda is just wrong. And Netflix needs to know that. So, you know, in addition to being very funny, there are several things I think are, are interesting about this. The first is how much something like this, you know, this kind of absurd moral panic about a children's cartoon basically replicates all of the impulses animate conservatives today in their opposition to the left. You know, all the things that they say are rampant among like everybody that they hate, you can find in something like this. So like intense snowflakiness and hypersensitivity. This kind of identity that's premised on victimhood, like even though the people who are doing it, uh, who are assuming this identity are in fact very powerful. This is the government of a, of a province. And then, you know, lastly, and most obviously, like the kind of urge to to censor and kind of start a pile on against ideas that are deemed to be offensive. 
and I, you know, this is not, I'm definitely not the first one to have made this point, but I, I do think it's interesting and something you can find recurring again and again, the way that all of these kinds of grievances that are so animating on the right today are things that conservatives are so often doing themselves. I'd like to know, does the Canadian Energy Center need a film critic? Because I am in the market and they seem like they might pay well. I am a freelancer. I am available. Yeah, well, I'd like to thank the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers for sponsoring the show. Support ethical oil, folks. But the other thing I find interesting about this, I guess, is connected to this this phrase woke capitalism that uh, American conservatives have started using. Did you see this very strange thing recently where Marco Rubio, it seemed like he came out in favor of the union drive mm-hmm. uh, at Amazon but really he was just complaining. Like he was saying, he wrote this op-ed in USA Today, but there was nothing like pro-worker about it. It was really just like Amazon is is woke. And uh, he said it's waging a war on quote, working class values, by which he just meant like conservative values, right? And, you know, he was citing examples, I guess, of like Amazon, I don't know, not stocking certain thing. Like there was a book called like When Harry Became Sally that they didn't stock or something like that. Uh, and he's very mad about this. Now, friend of the show, Carl Bayer wrote a really interesting blog post, partly riffing on this, uh, called The Confused Case Against Woke Capitalism. And, you know, he compares what Rubio said to some remarks that Rand Paul made back on Rachel Maddow in 2010. Basically, the, the crux of the conversation was that, like, Maddow was challenging Paul on the subject of desegregating lunch counters. And Rand, uh, Rand Paul, just read the quote here, he says, if you decide that restaurants are publicly owned and not privately owned, then do you say that you should have the right to bring your gun into a restaurant, even though the owner of the restaurant says we don't want to have guns in here because people might drink and start fighting and shoot each other. Does the owner of the restaurant own his restaurant or does the government own the restaurant? And then Maddow basically keeps pressing him and saying that, you know, this kind of libertarian defense he's offering, you know, doesn't really make sense given that people were beaten and fought to desegregate, you know, like Woolworth's lunch counters. You know, and the position she's taking, which I think is the correct one, is basically that people either have a right not to be racially discriminated against or not. And the sort of private property defense really doesn't apply here. But that was uh, very much the defense that Rand Paul gave. He said, uh, well, you know, I wouldn't attend. I wouldn't support restaurants that practiced and, you know, that, that engaged in discriminatory practices or whatever. Yeah, he, he absolutely would, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, citation needed on that. So uh, summing up this argument at the time, uh, Dave Weigel wrote, Paul believes as many conservatives believe that the government should ban bias in all of its institutions but cannot intervene in the policies of private businesses. Those businesses, as Paul argues, take a risk by maintaining, in this example, racist policies. Patrons can decide whether or not to give them their money or whether or not to make a fuss about their politics. That, not government regulation and intervention, is how bias should be eliminated in the private sector. And what's interesting about these two examples here is in one of them, Rand Paul is basically suggesting, like, don't worry, we don't need any kind of, you know, state intervention around this at all. The market will sort it out. You know, discriminatory restaurants are just part of the free market, and and the free market is self-correcting. So in a society that's not racist, a correction will just occur organically. And as Carl writes in his blog post, uh, in other words, a decade ago, the right-wing position was actually the exact opposite of the line they're taking today. The position then was that capitalism is actually a good and appropriate way to litigate questions of wokeness. And now there's this whole kind of rhetoric against like woke capitalism, which going back to this Netflix Alberta Bigfoot thing, that's very much the complaint there as well. Netflix, which is definitely not any kind of radical or socialist institution, you know, it's a private business. 
produce this thing because there's a, a market for this kind of children's entertainment. And a state agency that's run by a right-wing government, was created by a right-wing government, is now complaining about this and saying, well, actually, this private business is obligated to broadcast right-think, which portrays oil and gas in a positive light. And I don't want to spend too much longer on this, but it is incredible to me uh, both how conservatives today replicate so many of the features they decry on the left while spending so much time complaining about the products of the very system that undergirds their whole philosophy and trying to morally police the output of that uh, system when it doesn't exactly replicate their values, which, again, is what they accuse uh, people like us of doing. Who was it who said that politics is downstream from culture? Was it the late, great Matt Drudge who coined that? That phrase because conservatives really seem to believe that they really seem to believe that politics is downstream from culture and I mean I guess liberals do also to a degree liberals are also constantly fretting about the bad influence of bad culture but conservatives seem very interested in this idea of like being indoctrinated from a young age in a way that I don't think liberals are I think liberals are more about kind of like disavowing or disowning culture, growing past bad culture as you become a older and better person. As you become woke. Yeah, whereas conservatives believe it's something that like you get drilled into you in the first five years of your life and that, that kind of turns you into the person you are. I think it was Steve Bannon who brought the phrase politics is downstream from culture kind of back into general usage, but he was reinterpreting uh, an idea from the Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci. Oh, so it stretches before Matt Drudge is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it, d- it definitely does. So although... my, my pool of references does not. Okay, it begins <laughs> with Matt Drudge and it ends... <laughs> Also with Matt Drive. With, 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 with Jeff Wells. Yeah. Um. When I travel across this great country, I'm lucky to meet so many people working hard to build a better future. My Canada 150 is a place where everyone has a real and fair chance to succeed. I pledge to work hard for all Canadians and to invest in our youngest leaders, you. Because together, we are Canada. We were incredibly blindsided at multiple points by this. We were uh, naive on the politics. We were naive in how this was going to be seen. We, we own all of that. I, just, I, I wish others would also own their side of it. Well, especially the politicians. We were politically mugged, but not just us. All these young people were politically mugged in the process. Well, anyway, uh, we've got an episode uh, jam-packed with Canadian content today. Uh, There's something I've been uh, itching to discuss for a long time. And actually, nine months ago on our Patreon, we did do a kind of quick explainer um, when the scandal was fresh. This is the We Charity scandal, which a few months into COVID was really, uh, I suppose, apart from the SNC Lavalin scandal was and blackface uh, was kind of, the, you know, the biggest scandal of, of Justin Trudeau's tenure. Now, uh, why are we discussing this now? Uh, well, partly just because there's a new documentary about it from the CBC program, The Fifth Estate, which is an investigative program that's uh, that's very good. But also because two of the central characters in this scandal were testifying again uh, before Parliament a few days ago. So I confess I have watched an ungodly amount of uh, the Kilberger brother testimony, you know, which is all happening over Zoom, obviously, uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, and it, it is absolutely hilarious. And uh, earlier this week, the new testimony was no exception. Um, for, for those who, who aren't uh, familiar with this scandal, I mean, basically, early in COVID, uh, in April, the Trudeau government announced this new student grant program. 
Uh, it was ne nearly worth a billion dollars, a lot of money tied up in it. Um, and as I understand it, the idea was to pay students to do, you know, pay them not very much, so like less than minimum wage to do volunteer work of some kind. And late in June, Justin Trudeau announced that this program was going to be administered by something called the We Charity which is an organization fronted by Craig Kilberger and his less famous brother, Mark. I say less famous because Craig Kilberger is kind of a, a child celebrity. Uh, you may have heard of him uh, in the United States and beyond. Uh, and, you know, Mark is kind of a, a partner in the organization. It seems like kind of the brains of it, but is not, a, not as well known. Right. So the WE Charity used to be called Free the Children, and it was founded in 1995 when Craig Kielberger was still a teenager. Craig Kielberger kind of made his reputation as a precursor campaigner against child labor around the world. He famously, as a teenager, had a meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, who, after the meeting, raised the issue to the Prime Minister of India. His real star-making moment, though, was, again, when he was still a teenager, he went on the Oprah Winfrey show. Oprah financed the building of 100 schools all around the world to help educate children in underserved, undernourished communities. And from this, Craig and his older brother were able to build the charity Free the Children, which became We Charity. And if you're in Canada, you will be probably familiar over the last couple of years with the gigantic multimedia charity events that they would hold annually. I think they used to be, I don't know if they used to be annually, they used to kind of travel from school to school, from town to town with their We Days. Did you ever go to one of these, incidentally? You know... I don't think so. Uh, it seems like the kind of thing that I might have like gone to an assembly for when I was in grade 10, but you know, could not be more generic. <laughs> well, mer mercifully, I was never subjected to one of these, but uh, the documentary has, uh, has some footage from them and they are, you know, they have like the energy of like a Southern mega church, but then crossed with this kind of like Crossed with a TED Talk. Crossed with a TED Talk, crossed with the kind of like neoliberal evangelism of Davos. Like you hear lots of just sort of vague stuff about, you know, empowerment and how this is a movement. And all and, of you, you being know, here today, this sends a very powerful message. You right. Know, yeah. What the message today, is, we're not sure. Yeah, right. You, but you are the, you know, we are the people. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think there's a difference between we are the people and we are the people, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. They're filling stadiums all over the country, gathering a star-studded following with their message of giving back. Brothers Craig and Mark Kilberg are rock stars of social change and co-founders of the WE movement. Are you ready to change the world? Fueled by a desire to make the world a better place, Craig and Mark are mobilizing millions. is the moment uh so yeah like all like as with anything like this mostly kind of like form and no content and lots of corporate sponsorship but also lots of celebrity tie-ins so you get to hear about you know youth empowerment and stuff you know and this is all school children going to these things but then you know you also get to be like serenaded by selena gomez or you know whatever um these events kind of happen around the world they were they were a huge deal now this documentary which is called the price we paid uh catches up with mark and craig keelberger during their period of downfall which has been 
remarkably rapid just over the last year and these two guys were very closely connected to the trudeaus and uh, therein lies the downfall to turn back to the scandal or like the scandal's political dimension at least basically people started asking questions about the trudeau family and, and also finance minister now since retired finance minister bill morneau their their connections to the charity i mean trudeau famously used what what i think was his first public appearance after becoming prime minister to speak at a Wii event. Um, his history with them goes back much further, though. I think an underdiscussed portion of Justin Trudeau's career, which is nevertheless an important one, was his kind of pre-political era where he was this sort of like, I don't know, this kind of just national mascot who was just famous, like celebrity preceded anything he'd done. He was like a celebrity for being a celebrity, if you know what I mean. And Trudeau used to do this kind of, I don't know what to call it, a sort of apolitical speaking circuit where like various organizations would pay him to come and uh, you know, there's a theme here, give these sort of vague speeches. He would be introduced as like a youth advocate and stuff like that. Um, he'd give these kind of vague speeches for which, you know, it later turned out he was paid, uh, you know, a fair bit of money which was kind of a minor scandal shortly after he became prime minister. But, you know, he also spoke at these these we events and it turned out that various members of his family, because it's not just Justin Trudeau, it's also his mother, uh, his brother, his wife, who did a podcast for We Charity and was uh, was an official ambassador for We Charity. All of them had these connections and a lot of money changed hands. Other figures in the Liberal Party, Seamus O'Regan, who was a cabinet minister, his chief of staff, uh, have ties to the Kilbergers. The finance minister, Bill Moore. Morneau's daughter was a paid employee. Yeah, that's right. So all these connections and, um, you know, some people even speculated, I mean, there's various ways to read this, but I suppose the most critical interpretation of the available information you could make is that the, the WE organization, which was struggling amid the coronavirus, I believe it had laid people off and its donations were going down at the start of the pandemic, you know, basically called up its friends in government and had them throw it a financial lifeline. That's what some people speculated. But at the end of the day, you know, this organization, which had extensive ties to sitting members of the government, including the prime minister, got you know this contract that was worth nearly $1 billion, and which it does not seem like there was a great deal of effort expended to kind of find any other potential kind of vendors for this student grant. Well, I know that Trudeau's initial case was that this is the only charity in Canada that has the scale and the resources to pull off a program like this in, in such a short amount of time. And so that had a lot of people asking the question, well, why was that? Yeah, did, yeah. You, did you design the program so that that would be the case? But so th this documentary, which I would recommend, by the way, it's on YouTube and you can watch it for free. It's about uh, 45 minutes long. It's quite good. Uh, and CBC's The Fifth Estate has a lot of good documentaries, particularly about gruesome true crime cases here in Canada. And the host of this documentary is uh, the Canadian journalist Mark Kelly, who I, I think is pretty fair and balanced here. But, uh, you know, fair and balanced in this case, you know, you can tell he's a uh, you could tell what he thinks about uh, about all this. Right. Uh, I'll, ju I'll just put it that way. So he comes to the Kielberger's big office on Queen Street, which is in the process of being sold. There are almost no employees there. And the Kielbergers have a very strong Charles Foster Kane on election night energy <laughs> to them. And he kind of goes through one scandal after another, because it's not just the Trudeau scandal that gets raised. In the fallout from this scandal, a number of other employees start talking about mismanagement. As well, the Canadian Independent Journalism Org, Canada Land, 
continues to do some very serious investigations into the organization. So it's Canada Land that reveals that, contrary to Wee's claims that they never paid the Trudeau's speaking fees, they actually find a receipt for an honorarium given to Margaret Trudeau for one such speaking event, which leads we to eventually have to admit that actually they gave out tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of fees to the Trudeaus for speaking. There's also a lot of speculation about exactly how the donor money is being spent. One of Wee's many initiatives is to create infrastructure to provide drinking water in Kenya. And we find out that multiple uh, deep-pocketed donors received the exact same email telling them, you know, your $5,000 donation single-handedly built this well. You know, 5, 10, 20 people got this exact same email. So, you know, where did the money go? There are allegations that a hospital that we helped fund, a kitchen that we helped fund, were allegedly fraudulent, that they're kind of haphazardly assembled and then disassembled when donors were in town. Right. And so this is a good point to bring up something else that's crucial about this whole story, which is that, you know, this is really a bifurcated organization. You have the the We Charity, which is the nonprofit arm, formerly Free the Children, and then you have something called uh, Me to We which is uh, for-profit and ostensibly exists to generate revenue for the nonprofit side. And it's got all kinds of businesses. It's got all kinds of hustles. Uh, it's got you know shops where they sell sustainably made goods. It's got you know, these kind of big motivational speaking tours where they have celebrities, all this kind of volunteerism, uh, which is where this stuff starts to get you know pretty sketchy and uh, in some cases kind of gross. So, you know, they had a website, I'm not sure it's, if it's still up, where, you know, they offer paying customers in North America the opportunity to quote step into the shoes of Masi warriors in Kenya or experience a shamanic ceremony and get hands-on weapons training in Ecuador and one of the things that came out as part of Canada Land's investigations um, and by the way it's revealed in this documentary that uh, Jesse Brown the publisher of Canada Land the Kilbergers and or their lawyer uh, had a private investigator like investigate him and look into his kids and and his wife and things like that and his family which is incredibly sketchy this being a a very uh, famously litigious organization organization. But, you know, this kind of bifurcated structure where you have the for-profit arm and the not-for-profit arm, you know, one of the things that came out in the Candleland investigation is the two had the same CFO, and there's money that seems to be flowing back and forth between the two, and it's not always clear um, when you look at the numbers, you know, kind of where one stops and the other begins. You know, it's funny, I actually kind of agree, in a way, with something that uh, one of the Kilbergers says in this documentary. You know, their kind of take on it is, this is a political scandal that became the we scandal because we were scapegoated. You know, Craig and Mark Kilberger were scapegoated by the politicians. You know, they were just trying to do good for the children or whatever. I mean, okay, I don't agree with that part. Uh, But they got scapegoated by the politicians and it's implied, you know, by Justin Trudeau. And the thing is, I think as a political scandal, you know, this really is just a very kind of classic open and shut political patronage scandal. A lucrative government contract was awarded to, you know, people that members of the sitting government, including the top executive in the government, were intimately tied to, right? But to me, the bigger scandal, and I'm I'm glad that the documentary uh, focuses mostly on this as opposed to the political side of the scandal, is what this organization was kind of doing in the first place and what their business model is. Because really what the business model is, is kind of selling social justice to corporations. And, you know, the corporate partnerships that this organization enjoyed uh, were absolutely massive. In fact, I remember when the scandal, you know, when the political scandal was first breaking, you'd have newspapers that would be reporting on it and they'd have to have disclaimers at the bottom saying 
uh, oh yeah, by the way, we're a, like a partner with the the WE organization. So some of the corporate partnerships that come under scrutiny in this documentary include Boeing, who the Kielbergers are quick to point out, you know, we're not talking about their uh, munitions division, we're talking about their airplane division. There's also Dow Chemical, which teamed up with WE at a moment when they needed a real brand refresh. Oh man, how much, how, how great was that clip of Craig Kielberger like introducing this, the awesome epic CEO of Dow Chemical? <laughs> okay, I I love those scenes where he's like on stage and he's he's like all right guys we got we got some awesome events for you guys today you know really pandering teen speak being like yo y'all check it out we got an awesome event from dow chemical for y'all <laughs> yeah i mean we'll, we'll come back to the point in a second but these events are absolutely incredible and if you you know if you don't have time to watch the documentary just watch a few clips from these events because they are extraordinary. There's another one that's like kind of a bog standard, like delivering canned goods to poor people during the holidays thing that the key thing is that the canned goods are being delivered in Ford trucks. In a Ford F-150 specifically. And then you have like all these kids outside of a Ford dealership wearing like Ford branded shirts and stuff like that. Yeah, we're just out here delivering food to those in need in our Ford F-150. Always strategic mentioning that yeah yeah that that clip rules but you know as will was saying you know there's a lot of corporate sponsors like this uh you know uh, we mentioned a few of them already but you know you also have rbc bank you have you know cineplex movie chain microsoft kpmg uh the mining company tech resources and another thing that that's come out amid all this is the extent to which these sponsorships were absolutely integral to the business model of this company and how if you look at it a certain way it really starts to look like the purported business model, which is that there's this do-gooder arm that is subsidized by this for-profit arm, you know, that the relationship is symbiotic, but it's kind of working in the other direction. Um, so a page on Wee's website that I think has been changed now touts Mark Kilberger as a paid speaker, and it talks about, you know, how he, he can offer you insights into, quote, purposeful and profitable business strategies. Um, and it says that Mark can help, quote, inspire brand fanatics to stay loyal to you, your company and your cause and add a halo effect to your product. And there was an internal pitch that came out. I think it was uh, published either by Vice or by Canada Land, which touted the WE Youth programs as opportunities for partners to, quote, improve their brand reputation, particularly by increasing consumer perception of partners' investment in their local community. And also saying that uh, partnerships can, quote, drive consumer exploration, consideration, and purchase of products products and services. So I don't really think there's another way to interpret that besides the Kilbergers and their organization were telling potential corporate sponsors, if you partner with us and give us your money, uh, your brand will be enhanced because we have this coveted social justice brand. And one of the crucial moments in this documentary is one where Craig Kilberger is talking uh, and he's he's recounting a story. And by the way, the way he talks is absolutely extraordinary. I don't think it's exactly a coincidence that he and Justin Trudeau, who were both kind of celebrities from a very young age, they, they both talk in this kind of strange, hyper-affected way. They sound very similar. Um, and so he's, you know, he's talking in this way and he's giving this speech and uh, he's talking about how he was on, on a plane where he was talking to some corporate executive and he was suggesting that, uh, you know, the strategies in nonprofit business models could be adapted to the business models of for-profit companies. Uh, and apparently the this uh, CEO turned to him and after a long evocative pause said, that's the most interesting idea I've ever heard. God, how come nobody had ever thought to combine those two before? <laughs> and then and then Craig goes on to say in this clip, purpose is what makes uh, people passionate about your brand. So again, the point here is that people are more likely to patronize your company and give you their money if they think you're also ethical. 
And, you know, the Kilbergers in the documentary kind of offer the defense that, you know, we were bringing the companies over to us, not the other way around. But I think that's pretty difficult to square with, uh, you know, some of the partnerships that they had. I don't know if this is playing devil's advocate, but I'm just going to throw this out there. This isn't so much about the Kielbergers as it is about just any charity that's operating at this scale. You know, we live in a horrible, corrupt world. And let's take the Kielbergers at their word and believe that they actually do want to, like, lift people out of poverty and provide clean drinking water and uh, create sustainable solutions to the problems affecting our worlds. To do that at that level in our current system, you've got to work with corporate partners and you've got to work with evil, big-pocketed donors. You know, is there a way to do this work and not become corrupted. Well, I mean, that's why, you know, private charity is never, you know, especially kind of corporate charity is not actually not a real avenue, social enterprise or whatever they call it here. It's not ultimately, you know, a, a good path or a realistic path to social justice in any meaningful sense of the phrase. You know, to state the obvious, a lot of the corporations that, you know, you have to partner with to take the route that you're uh, that you're describing, you know, are all implicated in and, you know, the, the system that they are themselves functioning in is deeply implicated in all of these problems that they're trying to solve. But frankly, turning back to this case study specifically for a moment, I don't really buy the argument that they give because as one former employee is quoted in the documentary says, you know, we is kind of the charity equivalent of Facebook, where, you know, you use Facebook and you think of yourself as the customer. But actually, you're not the customer, you're the product. Facebook is bringing everybody to the same place and it's collecting their information so they can help advertisers, you know, market directly to you. And similarly, you know, at these wee days, as this former employee says, you know, the students are the product. And right after he says that, you see footage of Sophie Grenoir Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's wife, announcing, you know, quite uh, chirply, you know, Air Canada is, our, is the official travel partner of, you know, wee day or something like that. And, you know, in proper context, you see something like that and it really seems like that there's very little truth to the business model at all. And if insofar as they do do good works around the world, you know, that's a very small percentage of the actual output of this organization. I do not want you to let anyone get away with telling you that you're the leaders of tomorrow because you're already leaders today. Everything you do, the choices you make, uh, the advocacy you have, how you have conversations with your friends, your neighbors, your parents, matter and shape the world around you. You are leaders. You know, I think you, you can extend this critique to just a lot of private charity in general, not just kind of corporate sponsorships. I, I don't know if we talked about this on the last episode, but uh, when we watched the movie Stars and Strife, which was our last free episode, and which people might also have heard about on uh, the latest episode of Chapo Trap House, there's a, there's a guy in that who, uh, I think it's the guy from Home Depot, uh, Langone or something. Yes. Um, and he's talking about how he donated his hospital, which then, you know, the hospital gets uh, renamed after him. Um, then he paid the tuition fees of like 30 people in this graduating class or something. And then you see him talking about how, you know, that moment made me feel so good. Like that's a moment that can never be taken away from me. And um, and like, I really do think a lot of private charity, you know, it's not it's not too cynical to suggest that a lot of it really is just sort of indulgences for rich people. Well, I just want to reassure everyone that if you subscribe to the Michael and Us Patreon, if you donate to us, none of that money will go to any of those tainted charities. 
Luke and I are going to be keeping it for our own <laughs> ethical purposes. So you don't have to worry about it falling into the wrong hands. But, you know, as has been exhaustively documented, extremely rich people often actually give a very small percentage of their wealth to to charity. Like people who are less well off are far more generous with their money. But if you're a rich person and you can afford to give on a bigger scale, like if you can afford to don't, if you're the kind of person who can just casually give $60 million to, you know, a hospital to create like a new you know hospital wing or something you get a tremendous amount out of that uh out of that arrangement you you are essentially buying virtue and and that's especially helpful to you if you're somebody who's made your fortune in like blood diamonds or something like that (laughs) essentially buying an opportunity to have you know public officials municipal state federal whatever talk about what a great person you are uh to have your name on public buildings and you know a lot of this is also depending on uh what country we're talking about and what jurisdiction a lot of this is also effectively subsidized by the public anyway you know when when you give 30 million dollars uh unless the the laws change since the last time i look into this if you give 30 million dollars to you know a hospital or university in canada and it's it's you know as a charitable donation uh you're gonna get 10 million dollars back as a as a rebate anyway so your your 30 million dollar donation is really a a, a 20 million dollar donation and the public is paying the rest of it But whether this is happening on the level of like individual plutocrats giving large sums of money to things or happening in this kind of institutional way with something like the We Charity, I think the model is basically operating the same way, which is that in a world where basically everything uh, in our lives is structured by the market, you know, virtue is itself a commodity. Social justice is itself a commodity. And for a lot of businesses, when they get large enough and for a lot of just individual people, when they get rich enough, it's a very precious commodity. And it's something that is essentially built into just the cost of doing business now. And who could be a better, you know, front man for something like that than someone like Craig Kilberger? I mean, the clips in this documentary of him when he's a child are absolutely extraordinary. You know, he has this kind of like demonic, you know, young Pete kind of kind of energy to him. Yeah, I, I hated him. Um. He's It's so, <laughs> there's, there's something so kind of uh, affected about him. He has this kind of like, I don't know, this just awful aura of, of child celebrity to him. There's that clip of when he's, he's come back from his like trip to India in the airport and he's just surrounded by kind of like well-wishers and he's saying like I did not expect anything like this but seriously folks uh child labor is very serious and then and then later <laughs> at the end of the documentary they play another clip from that moment where he's talking about like you know I'm gonna go and work for some NGOs you know doing important work and who knows maybe politics along the way now, Craig Kilberger never got into politics, but a guy who would later be his friend, Justin Trudeau, did. And when the Wee scandal broke, what occurred to me was that this scandal, this organization and this scandal, they're perfectly emblematic of Justin Trudeau's Canada. They're the perfect scandal for Justin Trudeau's Canada. Because I know what you folks are thinking. You're thinking, um, um, that's what a scandal looks like in Canada? Uh, hang on, let me get this straight. The government wanted to create a program uh, to give money to children for volunteer work and that's a scandal will doing a really good impression of some of the most annoying twitter accounts in this country right there that was a defense that was a defense that was offered if you're listening and you think the resistance is something that only exists in the united states we got our own version uh, of it here and it is uh arguably uh, even more uh, deranged and intensely partisan, uh, except for the Liberal Party of Canada rather than the Democrats. But I say the scandal is perfectly emblematic because, you know, the model that we've been describing, I think, is very much the model that Justin Trudeau pioneered. 
it is very much the model on which Justin Trudeau, you know, made his name and which carried him into office, which was this very politically digestible idea that you can have bold, exciting, transformative, progressive change or whatever, but also we don't have to fundamentally do anything to change the structures of this country. Uh, We don't need to really change the culture of our politics. We certainly don't need any, you know, big new social programs or activist government or anything like that. Social justice and the private sector actually go hand in hand. You know, what's the favorite talking point of the Trudeau government when it comes to anything to do with the environment? The Trudeau government's official position, to go back to the oil sands uh, just for a moment, is uh, we can continue to build pipelines and expand the production of this finite resource that scientists are telling us is uh, destroying the planet and is going to make it uninhabitable. But the reason we're expanding the production is to subsidize our transition to clean energy or something like that. I mean, it's literally like uh, climate change is real and, you know, we are an evidence-based, science-believing government. But that's actually why we're building pipelines and we're expanding oil extraction. I think Trudeau's brand of feminism, uh, which, you know, he talked so much about in the early going, uh, kind of the same thing. Trudeau's what, what gets referred to in the press is his kind of, or what did get referred to in the press is his kind of populist uh, streak, you know, which was any, basically anytime a liberal politician says like inequality is a problem, you know, those get write ups in newspapers where it's like the ah, the po- the populist turn is finally here, like populism, you know, the rhetoric of the 99 percent and the one percent will now define our politics. And this has very much been the case with Justin Trudeau. I can't bring this up enough, but there is an op-ed that he wrote or, you know, whatever, that was ghostwritten for him. This published under his name back in something like 2014. He'd only been, he wasn't prime minister yet. He'd only been liberal leader for uh, a year or something like that, maybe less. And he was kind of pitching his, you know, big, bold anti-inequality agenda. He published this piece, uh, it was actually in 2013, uh, under the title, Why It's Vital We Support the Middle Class. Now, something I always say about liberals is just read what they actually say. Just listen carefully to what they actually say. They're constantly telling us what their actual beliefs and what, you know, what their deep beliefs and what their actual agenda is. So Trudeau wrote in this essay, national business leaders and other wealthy Canadians should draw the following conclusion and do so urgently. If we do not solve uh, the problems facing the middle class and and low-income earners, Canadians will eventually withdraw their support for a growth agenda. We will all be worse off as a consequence. Deepening anxiety yields deepening divisions in every society and we are not immune to that vicious cycle here in Canada. We will begin to vote for leaders who offer comforting stories about who to blame for our problems rather than how to solve them. So this was published in, you know, major sort of business newspaper in, in Canada. It's, you know, it's addressed to kind of national business leaders. And and I think, you know, can kind of read between the lines a bit. And what he's really saying is, if we don't at least sort of pretend to be doing something about this, if we, if we don't at least embrace kind of some rhetoric around inequality, you know, fighting it, if we don't kind of ceaselessly talk about uh, the middle class and stuff like that, people may actually start voting in governments that raise your taxes. I can cannot get the phrase out of my head. I've never been able to shake it about if we do not solve these problems, Canadians will withdraw their support for a growth agenda. That is such an incredibly evocative combination of words. And when he says, we'll begin to vote for leaders who offer comforting stories about who to blame for our problems uh, rather than who to solve them. So namely you, the national business leaders. People may start getting mad at, at, at you when you're making record profits and everybody else is drowning. And you know that's the last thing we'd want. We don't want to blame you. We're here as your sword and shield against that. But you got you know, you to meet us in the middle. And 
understand that when we say all this stuff, we don't actually mean a goddamn word of it. So, you know, Trudeau's rhetoric in so many areas has always involved this sort of embrace of like the soft language of social justice in a way which has driven conservatives absolutely insane. And similar to like when Barack Obama said that thing about, you know, we need to spread the wealth around, you know, so many of Trudeau's statements uh, that sound kind of social justice adjacent, they always send conservatives into a tizzy that, you know, he's telling us that he's actually this like dangerous radical figure who wants to completely change the country as we know it. But I've always found that hilarious because it's so clear that Justin Trudeau, if he has a political project, it's just kind of giving a shiny new paint job to the status quo, giving Canadian capitalism a luminous new sheen so that it as a product can be marketed, you know, better around the world. And that, you know, that project was remarkably successful for the first few years anyway. And I think it's a project very similar to the one that we see depicted in this documentary. What was the role exactly of Mr. Chen, senior advisor, to the uh, prime minister in setting up this program? I don't believe that, I don't think he had any role in that. Mr. Uh, is that the answer for both of you? Yes, that's correct. I, I, who are you referring to, sir? Can you repeat this, please? Ben Chen. There's no role. Craig, no role? Not that I'm aware of. Then why did you send him a, a message on LinkedIn on June 27th saying, hello, Ben. Thank you for your kindness in helping shape our latest program with the government. Warmly, Craig. Sure. So I, I sent 100 messages because I only had seven people, eight people on LinkedIn before that. And so that day, 100 messages went out. My EA sent them to people to join on LinkedIn, and he was one of them. Yes. I actually didn't, but Sorry, EA did. Craig, this is your message. It's signed by you. And if I could be clear, it doesn't yes. just say, I wish you well. It says, yeah. Ben, excuse me. Thank you for your kindness in helping shape our latest program with the government. Warmly, Craig. You sent that. Did you I, not? I don't, yeah, I don't dispute that that, that was sent. Um, but, sorry, sorry. Um, you got yourself in a lot of trouble here. You've just said a moment ago you thought that the Prime Minister's senior advisor, Mr. Chen, had no role in this, the establishment of the program, but I have correspondence where you thanked him for helping shape that very program. So why did you thank him for shaping the program when now you claim you didn't know he played any role in the program? My EA wanted to personalize and very kindly as a great EA, wrote a few lines, said a hundred different LinkedIn requests that went that same day to different people to join my LinkedIn page. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a president named Donald Trump. And he's not president anymore, so it's okay to joke about him again. Yeah, which we definitely stopped doing for four years. I mean, it simply was not funny. And and if you thought that was funny, that was your privilege showing. Uh, but anyway, I went looking online for clips from The Celebrity Apprentice because I was never an avid viewer of The Celebrity Apprentice, but I uh, had a TV in my house in high school. I would occasionally walk past other people's TVs. I would see bits and pieces of it, and I cannot find The Celebrity Apprentice anywhere. It's not on iTunes. It's not on any of the, you know, classic sketchy streaming sites I used to visit. I, I tried to torrent it a while ago, and I couldn't, I couldn't really find it. And this is insanity this man was the president of the united states and this stuff has to be taken out from behind lock and key it has to be <laughs> they, it's like they they burned the great library of alexandria <laughs> I, th this belongs to the world this should be immediately made in public domain and it should just be freely distributed like on every street corner because i kept thinking of classic scenes that i could get some serious metrics 
turning into Twitter videos, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I'll just tell you a few of them that I remember. Uh, well, I remember one from, I think, the season before it became The Celebrity Apprentice, when The Regular Apprentice was just kind of winding down. And uh, it was kind of low rent at this point. People weren't watching in the same numbers they used to. And one of the tasks that the people had to do was help design a charity event for one of the comedy legends, one of everybody's favorite comedians who had graciously deigned to come and do a charity event for Donald Trump. And that man's name was Joe Piscopo. And you saw Joe Piscopo at dinner with some of these apprentice contestants. And I will never forget, I just remember him saying, you know, they call me Joey Benefit. You got a charity, I got a tuxedo, baby. I just want to find that clip and spread it all around the world. I remember another one. I remember another one from the Celebrity Apprentice era of Trump on the phone talking to Andrew Lloyd Webber, who had just on London's West End opened his sequel to Phantom of the Opera called Love Never Dies. You see Trump in his office being like, hello, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I hear that the sequel to Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, is about to open and I'm sure it's going to be a huge hit. And then it cuts to Andrew Lloyd Webber on the phone in London being like, Thank you so much, Donald. I understand that The Celebrity Apprentice is on its latest blockbuster season. And the last one I remember, my favorite clip, maybe in all of TV history, is Trump on the season finale, I think in 2011 or 2012. He's in his office in Trump Tower and he's on the phone. And it begins with him going, Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We're about to film the last episode of this season of The Celebrity Apprentice and I think it's going to be really hot. And then he puts down the phone and, you know, he stands up and he starts talking to the camera like Alvy Singer being like 12 celebrities, 12 weeks, and it all comes down to this week. But I got to get myself to the Museum of Natural History. And so he goes downstairs and he tries to hail a cab. And who comes up? Champion race car driver Mario Andretti in a race car. Oh my God, it's Mario Andretti. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Trump. I understand that you have to get your way to the Natural History Museum. Well, I can help you. (laughs) So he gets in the back seat and they zoom through Central Park. And there's like a camera in front of Donald in the back seat, you know, as he's struggling to keep his hair down. And then he, he leaves the car and he enters the Natural History Museum. Full house everybody giving him a standing ovation he walks down the aisle just like high five and everyone cool as a cucumber and he starts his monologue again it all comes down to this week (laughs) you may think i was building up to a point with this i wasn't i was just going down memory lane and i want these clips somebody anybody who maybe has taped this back in the day dust off your vhs tape and send it to me well because my brain has been uh completely poisoned by this podcast as you were finishing that story i was just picturing donald trump walking into a a wee day celebration and craig (laughs) kilberger up on stage just in his like peppy kind of church of scientology voice saying ladies and gentlemen donald trump hey guys do you guys like the apprentice Well, I don't think the the Kilbergers ever did partner with Donald Trump, but uh, a major oversight on their part, in my opinion. Now watch this drive. 